Welcome everybody, I'm Richard Krause. I hope you're staying healthy and I hope you're staying happy. We have a big show for you today. Direct from the southwest of England, actor James Purifoy joins us via Zoom. Now, if you're a fan of HBO's Rome, you know him as the joyfully decadent Roman general and politician Mark Antony. Perhaps you were a fan of The Following, which saw him play a college professor turned serial killer and cult leader for three seasons opposite Kevin Bacon. The versatile actor has a list of credits as long as my arm, including the film he joins me to talk about today, Fisherman's Friends. It's not about cough drops. It is a good-natured crowd-pleaser about a real-life singing group from Cornwall in England who went from singing at the local pub when they weren't on the water making a living to producing the biggest-selling traditional folk album of all time. Purefoy plays Jim, the leader of the group, who was initially skeptical about their chances for success outside of their tiny little village. Now, when we did this interview, he was sitting in his garden and proudly showed me all of the produce he's been growing since the beginning of the pandemic. That also means that from time to time, you'll hear a bird chirping or a bit of wind. It's not your speakers. It's just nature on Purefoy's property. We began by talking about the enduring appeal of the kinds of songs that made fishermen's friends famous. Sea shanties. I thought I heard the old man say, just out of interest, what kind of music would I sing in? The Rock and Roller 1752. And I think the amazing thing, isn't it, about those sea songs is that although we don't we don't really sing them anymore, but somehow they're here, aren't they? they I think anybody who lives on a, on a, on a seaboard somewhere, somehow they're in our DNA. And it's really odd how you actually know the words. You go, I don't know, how do I know the words to that? But you do. It's odd. Purefoy's resume is fairly eclectic, and I read that he says that he's always looking for jobs that hold something in them for him that he can really get his teeth into, something he hasn't done before. So I asked him, what was it about this script that appealed to you? Uh, okay, uh, singing. That was, a, that was a whole new ball game for me. Never done a musical. Never, I obviously sound marvelous in the shower, don't we all? <laughs> but uh, I'd never actually done that in front of people, and and um, and so that was a that was a, a reason to do it. I think also I was interested in the story because it comes from the West Country, which is where I come from, where I am now. Um, the West Country in England, the southwest of England. It's not an area of England that gets a lot of attention in terms of movies or characters, as you very rarely see anything in the West Country. So I was just kind of I wanted to fly a little bit of a flag. One of the things that works so well in Fisherman's Friends is that it has a real sense of place. It takes you to Cornwall, England, and gives you a look at Cornish rebelliousness, history, community, and friendship. They actually shot in Port Isaac in Cornwall. I asked him if being there helped him create the character and maintain that kind of integrity. This is what he had to say. Yeah, you know, what, what happened was that we went down there and we met with the Fisherman's Friends. There's a pub there called the Golden Lion. All our digs, our, the places that we'd been billeted in, were maybe just a, a two, maybe a two-minute crawl from the pub door. <laughs> so when we were turfed out very late at night, having had a, something of a lock-in rehearsal, right. um, we uh, we were managed to get home. So it was, and we were there off-season. And uh, you know, if anybody knows anything about English country 
um, towns in the in the summer they're always rammed with tourists and youngsters and people on holiday and vacay and stuff. So, but we were there out of season, so it was very very quiet. So we were able to go about do our business and uh, and try and paint the story of these extraordinary hairy bottomed fishermen. <laughs> That's what they are. They're just big blokes who who did an extraordinary thing and managed to take these shanties that they were singing, these sea shanties, and turn it into an enormously successful album. Um, and then they went on to play the Glastonbury Festival. They, they, they backed up Beyonce the year she played. I don't know what she made of them. It must have been hilarious. They've sold millions of albums and, and they give a concert still every Friday night on the, on the dock there in, in Port Isaac. They've raised half a million pounds for charity. Um, and they're just a remarkable men, but really, they're fishermen. That's what they are. I told James Purifoy, star of Fisherman's Friends, that I liked that this movie was a study in what makes happiness and personal contentment, that it is unabashedly optimistic, and that there isn't a cynical bone in its body. And then I asked him if he thought that's why it has connected with audiences in our strange times. This is what he had to say. I think you're absolutely right. I think people come out of that film feeling like, oh, yeah, we are members of the human race. Mm -hmm. And not just are we members of the human race with just looking after our own tiny little block and our own tiny little family, but actually we are part of a much wider community of people. And uh, I, think, well, I think one of the reasons it was very successful here in this country is that it came out maybe two weeks before Brexit happened, and yet people were able to go and see a movie that was about a community and about a small village and about friends and love and relations and the things that bind us together and we weren't concentrating on the things that drive us apart. And I think that's, um, you know, what we need to be doing, not just in movies, but in politics as well. We really need to find a way to come together because being driven apart like we are is, uh, doesn't help anybody. My conversation with James Purefoy, star of Fisherman's Friends, now available on VOD, turned to the pandemic. I said that I thought that the pandemic would connect us all, that we would realize that we're all just people looking for the same thing, no matter where we are in the world, looking to look after our family, hoping to have food on the table, all the stuff that people around the world want to have. But instead, in some quarters, something opposite has happened. We now have protests on the street about wearing masks and people seem to be slipping back into the polarization that occurred before the pandemic. I asked him what he thought about that. I totally get that. I see those. We don't get that so much here. People tend to be pretty cool about wearing masks. I think people understand. And maybe that's what it's about. Maybe it's about an education thing. I don't know. Pink people in Europe, and certainly oftentimes, obviously, in lots of places in the United States and Canada and places that a lot of people understand that I'm wearing a mask not just to protect me, but to protect you. And you wear one to protect me and yourself. And, you know, I mean, when I look at those, those key workers, when I look at those health service workers who are wearing those masks 12, 14 hours a day, and then you get people getting wound up and upset about having to wear one when they go to Walmart. I, I, I just, it makes me very sad. It makes me, 
You just go, come on, guys, it's just a mask. It's not that big a deal. It's not a muzzle. Continuing my conversation with James Purefoy, star of Fisherman's Friends, available on VOD wherever you legally rent or download movies, I gave him a quote that I had read in an old interview with him where he had been described as a, quote, stealth celebrity. And then when he was asked about it, he said, I couldn't be happier. I asked him why he was happy to, in a lot of ways, fly under the radar. Because I love the job. I love the acting. I like the stuff. The older I've got, the less interested I am, I have to say, although this is very pleasurable because you're, yeah. you're clearly a very smart man, but the less interested I am in the, the finished product, actually, and I've become so inured and disappointed to what marketing people and advertising people, what they've done to projects that I've been in, where you go, I can't believe you even watched it, and yet you've come up with this poster. What, do you know anything about this show? So I think that one, one becomes a little cynical about that kind of thing. And I think you, the, the, the answer to that is just to really be present between action and cut. And that, that's the thing. That's the only really, really pure bit of the job that I'm, I'm really interested in. So um, I think being a still, uh, that's what I love doing. Uh, the fame, yeah, yeah, keep it. <laughs> it really doesn't bother me. As long as I, if I can keep doing what I'm doing, and, uh, and, and, and not be vastly famous, then I'm really happy with that. That's okay. Do you think that your early years uh, working on a pig farm, working as a porter in a hospital, kind of gave you a, a grounding uh, mm -hmm. in the real world that you have taken forward then? Without a doubt. Certainly work. The pig farm, not necessarily, because really my only companions on that job were pigs. Um, <laughs> Uh, but uh, the hospital, I worked in a hospital for two years when I was 16 and I'd lived in a very closeted world of a of English private school, boarding school, um, where we were very uh, cloistered away from the world. And suddenly I was working in a, a, you know, a public hospital where you were seeing, you would see people, you know, in a single day I could, ha I could be there at somebody's bedside with them. They have a thing called a in the olden days, I think called a crash trolley, which is what happens when somebody has a heart attack. You have to hell bend for leather, get this trolley to somebody's bedside so they can put the paddles on and clear. You can see somebody die in the morning and then be witnessing the birth of a baby in the afternoon. You can, it's, it's, a, it's a tremendously leveling job. You meet, as, you, as you, you must be aware, in England, we have a public health system. So every hospital is full of everybody. Yeah. all the different kinds of people we get. Um, and you could spend time with people who are, who are cancer patients. And even if it's just the, the trip from the ward to the physiotherapy department, sometimes they just want to chat to somebody who isn't a doctor or isn't a, a nurse. You know, they just want to talk about the weather or the football or what's happening outside the hospital. And, and you were the conduit for that. So yeah, that was a really big formative experience for me those two years. That was my interview with James Purefoy. You can see him now on VOD wherever you legally rent or download movies in Fisherman's Friends. My next guest today joins me via Zoom from his home in Los Angeles. Rod Lurie is a West Point graduate 
turned filmmaker. In this interview, we talk about West Point, why he stood at attention at a screening of Poltergeist, and of course, his latest film, The Outpost. It's an intense recreation of the Battle of Kamdesh, a bloody 2009 confrontation that saw 400 Taliban fighters attack combat outpost Keating in Afghanistan, a station manned by 53 American soldiers and just days away from being shut down. Critics are raving about this film, lots of Oscar attention on this movie already, and you can see it right now on VOD, wherever you legally download and rent movies. Let's get to know Rod Lurie. We can't go to the movies right now. Right. We haven't been able to go for months in most places. Movie theaters are opening up slowly in various places, but it's going to be a little while yet. I'm asking people if you have some kind of memory, like one memorable night at the movies, that pops into your head when you think about going to the movies, it's the memory you have. Yeah, I, I, I have many memories of, of going to the movies. I think that my most memorable was in uh, 1982. I was a cadet at West Point. I had leave for the weekend and I went to New York City and I went to see two movies. And one was The Road Warrior, the George Miller film. Wow. And, Oh my God, I was so, I was so absolutely uh, excited by that movie. I thought it was so thrilling and I left on such a high. And you know, I always knew I wanted to be a filmmaker and I said to myself, that's the kind of movie that I wanna make. I wanna have that sort of effect on an audience. And I left that theater and I went to see another movie and that movie was E.T. And, and I remember at the end of that movie, I was in tears like, like a baby. I'm this tough military guy. I'm, I'm crying because, you know, E.T. went home and the, the, the heart is beating. And, yeah, yeah. You know, they, and they say, I'll be right here. And, they, and, and I'm just, and I leave that movie and I say, oh my God, this is the kind of movie I want to make. And so I was, I was, I was really um, excited. And then, oh, 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 and, then, and then I went to a third movie. And this was actually kind of funny. That was Poltergeist. <laughs> and and Poltergeist, I now recall, begins with um, the American flag and the national anthem on a TV, I think. I think that's how it begins. And I remember that because at West Point, when you go to the movies, they begin with a video of the national anthem, and, and we as cadets are all, are all supposed to stand. Mm -hmm. And I just intuitively just stood. I'm the only person in the theater that stands because the national anthem has come on. So anyway, those are my uh, those are my <laughs> those are my experiences. That is a great day at the movies. Now let's just fill in some dots here before we get to the outpost, yeah. which is fantastic, and congratulations Thank on you. it, by the way. But uh, what made you attend West Point? Because this is all leading into some questions I have later for the film. I, I didn't attend West Point because of some patriotism or something like that. I thought many things. One is I thought it was probably the best school in the world in terms of a fully rounded education. And by that, I don't just mean, you know, the, uh, the education level that you will uh, get um, academically. Um, and in fact, you know, it has like the fourth or third most Rhodes scholars, you know, it's a very high level uh, of, of education there. Um, you didn't have to pay to go there. That was another thing. Uh, my parents wouldn't have to spend a dime. In fact, you get paid to go there. And um, finally, um, I, I thought, well, no, this is uh, the penultimate reason. Um, I, I thought that um, it would be a very interesting place to have gone 
uh, 30, 40, 50 years down the line. People say, where did you go to school? You go to West Point. Well, that's a conversation. Right. If, you know, I've been accepted to places like Northwestern and Duke and Georgetown, places like that, but to Yale. But I thought this would be the most interesting uh, place, say, that you came from. But also, I wanted to be a filmmaker. And I knew that I would eventually become a filmmaker. And my theory was, you don't go to film school. You go and you study what you want to make movies about. And I had always been interested in leadership and principle were the two things that most interested me. And uh, there's no better school for that than, than West Point. Well, I was going to ask you, between West Point and your experience in the military, how that prepares you for being on a film set. And I know this sounds like a bit of a stretch, but there's a hierarchy in both situations. Yeah. Uh, there is a sense of urgency. There's a lot of waiting around. <laughs> there, I mean, there are some things. Right. So, so you've already answered the question. <laughs> <laughs> you've more or less answered. You've more or less answered the question. West Point really prepares you in, in the sense that it teaches you that leadership isn't uh, monolithic. That you have to um, understand that every individual is different, and that you have to lead differently, different people, um, as as a as a general rule. And that leadership is about inspiring people to be their best, and not convincing them that you're the best. That is really very important on a film set as well. But more importantly, um, for myself and for all the military guys that were on the set, and there were a lot of military guys on the set, there was no problem that we would confront where we couldn't say we had been in a tougher scrape than this, right. especially the guys that had actually been in, um, that had actually been in combat. Um, so it's a very calm set when you, when you have it run by military people. It's like, you know, we're, we're going to solve things as they come and everything has a solution. And could you have made this film had you not gone to West Point and had you not uh, done time four years in the military? I, I could have made it, but it wouldn't have been the, the same film. And you wouldn't have had the same love and the same respect for the people that you're portraying in the, in, in, in the film. And... Um, you, I, I wouldn't be able to bring some of the authenticity that exists in the film. You know, even not just from what I know about uh, the military, but in accepting the wisdom of the people that were advising me on the film. Many other filmmakers would at some point start rolling their eyes as to um, the insistence on getting things right from the, the military uh, advisors that I had, people like uh, Jericho Denman and uh, Ray Mendoza and uh, Hank Hughes and, and uh, Daniel Rodriguez and uh, people like that. Um, and to me, I took all that very seriously. Uh, you know, I, I feel very indebted to, um, you know, to the Army. I'm midway through my conversation with Rod Lurie. Now, at various times of his career, he's been in the military, he's a West Point graduate, he was a film critic, a journalist, an author, now he's a filmmaker, an award-winning filmmaker, and I suspect that more awards are coming his way when more people have had a chance to see his latest film, The Outpost, now out on VOD. I started off this segment by asking Rod what made that battle one for the history books. This is what he had to say. It's a battle that really should never have taken place in the sense that the, the battle only occurs as a, as a piece of opportunity for the enemy. You know, we put an outpost at the base of mountains. 
there were reasons for that, but there, in my opinion, the reasons were not good enough to put us into such a vulnerable position. You know, even the layman watching a movie for the first time, when Scott Eastwood comes out in the morning and looks up at these mountains that surround him, he's looking up at them and he's going, shit, man, we're, we're, we're doomed. You know, uh, and the big one is going to come at some point, and the big one does come. And the big one comes um, on October 3rd, 2009, where we are outnumbered, I think, eight or nine to one, uh, 53 men. And these Taliban descend upon them with much greater weaponry and with uh, much greater force and with a tremendous zeal. And, um, and we survived it. And uh, we lost eight men, which is horrible, awful. But the battle was won. And it was won because of uh, the leadership of um, the young men that were on that post and from their brotherhood and their desire to protect uh, one another. Well, the character that Caleb Landry Jones plays mm -hmm. in an absolutely tremendous performance yes. is someone that I found really interesting because he was a, a, a person who understood that fear is very much a part of what you're up against. And so often mm -hmm. in war films and war dramas, we're not allowed to see the fear. It's seen yes. as weakness or it's seen as, as something that we shouldn't be seeing. And I love that that was embraced in this we, film. Weakness is uh, uh, w the very definition of bravery is um, to do something in the face of fear. If, you're, if you don't have any fear, then you're just fearless. And so what? Right. You know, then that doesn't say anything about your character other than maybe you're a moron. You know, he's a, you know, and by the way, you are right about the Caleb Landry Jones performance. My God, this guy is, it's one of, in my opinion, my opinion, one of the best combat performances in the history of the screen art. It's really something to be believed. I really hope that people remember him at the, at the end of the year. Did you and know it when you, when it was happening? When you yeah, were watching? I mean, I, yes, I, 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 I did. I mean, I'm watching it and I'm watching the effort that he's putting into, into the performance. It's interesting that you asked that question. Not a lot of uh, journalists think, think to ask that because the interesting answer is there's usually one or two performances that are really good in a movie that you think are, are shit when you're, when you're shooting it. And then you understand the, the nuance of the, of the actors and the sort of the intelligence that they bring to it. Um, and, and that's usually from roles that are well rehearsed. You know, Caleb really rehearsed a lot um, his physical actions and what he needed to do for technical reasons. We needed to get this right. But he's, he's a furnace. You know, when you open the door to that furnace, the fire just comes out. And you're not sure what you're going to get from take to take. He's a very, very innovative actor. By the way, he's exactly in real life the opposite of Ty Carter, the Medal of Honor recipient that he plays. He's a scrawny guy. He's, um, you know, he's <laughs> seems to begin every day with a joint and every hour <laughs> on the hour sort of guy. Um, and in fact, when he went to meet the real Ty Carter, um, Ty calls me and he says, um, Rod, this guy, he's going to go to the gym, right? <laughs> he was really concerned about that. But he did go to the gym and he did train and he got his, and he got his act together. And it's, it's a spellbinding performance. By the way, I love literally everybody's performance in this film. Scott Eastwood never, ever, ever been better than this. Um, I think he's a better actor 
at his age than his dad was at, at his age. Was there ever a thought, and I know this is based on real people, but giving him a nickname rather than calling him Clint, which is his character's well, name? Okay, uh, hold on. Never used once in the whole film. Never used once. Is it not? I guess I got that from my reading. No, 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 no. Could you imagine what a distraction that would be if I'm calling him? He looks just like his dad. So if I'm calling him the whole movie, that's going to be really, really weird. I, um, uh, no, in fact, it's a very, very important point that I make that nobody's first name is uttered in the entire film until the very end of the movie where I tell you what their first names were. It was absolutely intentional. And in fact, that's the way it goes in the military. You almost never use your, uh, your first name in the military. Yeah, there were people that were like best friends and they never, they never knew one another's first name. And that, literally, Carter, uh, Ty Carter, nobody on that base knew what his first name was. Those details, I think, are the thing that make this feel like such a, a rich tapestry. We get to meet the characters at the beginning of this for the first 40 minutes or so. And so when all hell breaks loose in that last hour, not only is the battle scene frenetic and you think there's no way they're in the middle of a pit, they can't get out, and, and, but you care about them. They are well, not just people running around in, in uniform. Well, that's because, that's because we cared. And we got to know the, the families of the farm, got to know these soldiers really well. And the actors themselves who really got to know the people that they were portraying, there's no way that they were going to allow their characters to get lost in the shuffle. And at some point, each one of them came to me and asked for an adjustment to this line or even the way that they were shot so that we, or filmed, I should say, um, that they would that they would really be clear. Now, I wanna, I wanna say something that's really important right now is that uh, people watching this and, and they're gonna go see the outpost are gonna see it on VOD, they're gonna download it. Pretty please, with all sorts of sugar on top, do not watch this phone on your iPhone. Do not watch this phone even on your computer. Find the best system you have and watch it that way. You know, we worked really, this was intended for the big screen, the pandemic killed that. Um, so we're asking everybody, please watch this in the best way that you can. Your father was a political cartoonist uh, your family argued politics around the dining, the the dining room table, from what I understand. You have a dog named Potus. I know that. That's stuff, man. <laughs> yeah, I have, a, I have a fantastic dog named Potus, yeah. and it's a girl. And, and so with all of that, you would think that walking into the outpost, that we would be watching a film that was politicized in some way. The only suggestion that I would make is that it is tacitly... Uh, critical of the army in the sense that these men were put in an unwinnable situation at the bottom of three mountains yes. where they could easily be surrounded and picked off and they weren't taken out when they should have been taken well, out. Well, I, I, will, I will disagree with you vehemently. It's okay. not acid. <laughs> <laughs> the army completely fucked this up. Can I say that on your thing? Can sure they, can. They messed it up. And in fact, that is explained at, at, the, at the end of the film. This was a catastrophic a mistake. But these guys, um, you know, they overcame the mistake of um, the superiors who made this decision. There was a reason to put them there. I'm not saying it wasn't a reason. As I said before, though, it, it wasn't good enough. I am very proud that when we tested this film, 
it was very clear at a hundred percent degree of testing that nobody saw this as remotely political. It is not a political film. It's just not, you know, they stayed over two administrations, the Bush administration and the, and the Obama administration. So there's no fault on, you know, I, you know, Bush was not in the Oval Office and said, you know what, let's put, let's put Zappost below these mountains. His, his uh, commanders made, uh, made that decision. And so, and then they were called out for it. They were called out for it. And it, this will never happen again, not in the United States Army, or I certainly hope not. That was my interview with director Rod Lurie. Look for his movie, The Outpost, wherever you legally download or rent movies. Next up, stay with us. Phil Dilio joins us to talk about his new book, You Should Have Heard Just What I Seen, pop music at the movies and on TV. So the book starts uh, really with Mad Men, talking about the show Mad Men. What was it about that and its use of music uh, that pushed you along towards doing the blog and now the book? Yeah, um, the blog started simply because my friend Scott and I, Scott was someone that wrote the Trump book with me. Um, we, we were, he just said, I wonder what the last song is going to be. I mean, everybody was wondering what's going to happen to Don, what's going to happen to Peggy. Of course, the way we think it was, what's going to be the last song? Uh, and I suddenly realized that I really cared about that. So we each set down a few ideas. Um, you know, the chances of guessing what the last song would be are pretty minimal, but just our thoughts on what they should use as the last song. And, um, one of the things that I suggested, which I took from someone else on a message board, actually turned out to be the last song. It was the New Seekers, the Coca-Cola jingle. He, he had planted that idea in my mind about a week before, and he had it dead on. And it was a great ending. It was a perfect ending. That's how the blog started. Um, we wrote a little bit more about Mad Men. We went on to list our actual favorite uses of songs um, over the course of the seven seasons. And then we just said, well, let's keep going. Uh, we'll just write about pop music and movies, which is something I've been writing about for quite a long time, going back to three pieces I did in the late 90s. Um, Scott kind of drifted away. I kept going. And then a couple of years ago, I said, I think I can probably turn this into a book. And I was still seeing new stuff all the time, like Fargo and um, um, Sharp Objects and, and shows that were just starting uh, Killing Eve. So I was constantly adding to it, catching up with stuff I wanted to write about, but also stuff I was encountering. And you talk, you've talked a, a great deal about television there. Movies are covered in the book as well, though. You talk about Scorsese and, and people like that. But when did pop music become important uh, in movies and television? I mean, there are two different time frames we're talking here, yeah. I think, but uh, as... In, in terms of soundtracks, when did it become important? That's something I've tried to pin down so many times, and it's very difficult because, you know, you can go back to Kenneth Anger's Scorpio Rising, uh, which I think is 1963, where a 28-minute, um, you know, underground experimental film that has wall-to-wall -wall pop music um, used, you know, if you, if, I, don't, I don't know if you've ever seen Scorpio Rising, but the way it's used is it just, wow. Um, sometimes ironically, sometimes just off the wall. Then you move on to the Beatles and the Richard Lester films. Uh, obviously, they're hugely important. I think the next big thing was probably The Graduate in 1967, which had uh, a, a profound impact on me in terms of um, 
uh, how I how I heard music in a movie and what it could do. I think from there, Scorsese kind of enters the picture. Everybody would point to Mean Streets, but actually, if you if you watch Who's That Knocking at My Door, it's just as impressive as Mean Streets in, in terms of its use of music. Mean Streets and American Graffiti both come out in 73, uh, huge. Um, and, and you know, from there, Scorsese kind, kind of holds sway for the next couple of decades. There, there's lots happening, lots of things. People would point to Sinai Fever. Of course, I left out Woodstock and Easy Rider. It just depends your perspective. Um, you know, some people would say Woodstock was a huge breakthrough. For me, that's a concert film. That's a different thing. Uh, I think after Scorsese, the next big thing is Tarantino when he comes along with Reservoir Dogs in '91. And then uh, another inflection point I often point to is around 1997, 98, quick succession, you get, first you get um, Boogie Nights, which is just one of my favorites in terms of music, then Rushmore, and then The Virgin Suicides. They all happen within a few months of each other. And for me, that's the movie timeline. But then the TV timeline, I think, really comes in with and I underrated The Sopranos in the book. I just finished a rewatch of it. I think it was much more important than I give it credit for in the book. The book is sort of focused on Mad Men, which I still think is the greatest TV series for using pop music. But um, when I wrote about The Sopranos in the book, I was only up to season three. By the time I finished it, now that I've done the rewatch, I think you could say that is almost the beginning of television. Mad Men brings it to a new level. And, and there's just so many shows now that where music is integral to the show and people write about it. You know, I, I mentioned how many shows go to Google. You can find 10 best uses of music and Breaking Bad and 10 best music, uses of music and this and that. And it's just amazing how much people pay attention to it now. What are some of the most overused songs in movies and television? <laughs> Um, I'm always talking about if it's if it's America in the late 60s, if it's something on 1968, you're going to hear White Rabbit, you're going to hear Foxy Lady or Purple Haze, uh, the Chamber Brothers, Time Has Come Today. Um, uh, God, there's just this litany of songs that they're, they're always going to be the default songs. And, and, you know, they're great songs and sometimes they're used well and sometimes they're just kind of put in there. I would just as soon hear something like The Mothers of Inventions, Trouble Every Day, which I think is probably uh, as great a song as you could ever have if you wanted to soundtrack all, soundtrack all the unrest that was going on in 68. It was written about the Watts riots. Right. Um, so yeah, there is this core of songs that gets over, get overused all the time and then filtered down to commercials, sometimes really weirdly. You see, I, I'm sure you must have seen it when the pandemic struck. I was constantly seeing this commercial for a cruise line that used White Rabbit. That's and right. it just made no, it made no sense at all. <laughs> you know, I mean, this woman is on the cruise line and she, she looks like she's tripping. And why are they using White Rabbit to advertise the cruise line? Um, I loved hearing it, and it was kind of weirdly effective, but it sure didn't make any sense. Uh, I often think that if you notice the music in a film or a television show, then the storytelling is failing because you are being taken out of the story by this external force. I'd like to think that when it all is clicking along and everything is working nicely, that is just one big machine and all the parts are, are fitted together so beautifully that you don't notice the scenes, you don't notice the music, you don't, it should all just work as one. Um, are there, uh, do you agree? Or, or is music something that you have to 
think of separately from the story. I, I agree up to a point. <clears throat> I don't think it, if it's if you're noticing it and you're thinking, wow, they shouldn't be using that or why are they using that? That's a bad thing. Um, I, I agree that seamless is nice where the music just becomes part of the whole experience. Um, I think I'm much more attentive to it than the average moviegoer. Um, I do like to really notice and hear the song. I, I, it drives me up the wall if a director uses a song and, and keeps the volume so low. I always think, why are you bothering to use this? Or cuts it short. Um, a quick example I'll point to, and you know, it has great moments, obviously, but in Pulp Fiction, Tarantino uses Al Green's um, Let's Stay Together, I think, or is it I'm Still in Love With You? I think it's Let's Stay Together. The greatest songs of the 70s starts off it's loud it's great and then he lets it play for 10 seconds and then he pulls the plug so i i don't like that uh, if you, so I, I agree up to a point but if you're going to use it yeah i do want to notice it and i do want to think about it um like re-watching the sopranos uh, one episode that ended with carmela finding out about meadow's engagement and they cut and she's crying and she sees tony floating on the pool and they cut to bobby darren's cover of if i were a carpenter that really, I said, that's just amazing. And I did stop and I, I thought about if I were a carpenter and tried to fit it into, why are they using that? Is it just sensation or the after more? So I do like to notice it and think about it. I know what you're saying. Um, and if it sticks out in a bad way, that's awful. I've written uh, a great deal about music. I've written books about music and, and I don't know how many articles, thousands probably. Uh, but the last book uh, that I wrote about music was about uh, Elvis Costello and My Aim is True. And I came across his famous quote, writing about music is like dancing about architecture. And so I wonder how you approach writing about music to make it visceral and, and uh, come alive for the reader. Yeah, well, writing about, uh, you know, this is a music book, but it's also a film book. So I would sort of, you know, if, if I wanted to write about music in a particular film or TV show, I would also just write about the film and show in, in general thoughts on it and kind of work my way into the music. I didn't just want to talk about the music in a vacuum. Um, I, I, I tend to write, I take it for granted that people have seen what I'm watching what I'm writing about, that they've seen it themselves. You know, I know I don't, I, I just skim the, do the bare skim of movie reviews in advance. I think writing about movies and music, it's always better if you've seen or, or heard it yourself, um, you know, as opposed to the consumer guide aspect of it to get you interested in it. Um, yeah, writing about music is difficult. You know, you, um, I'm, I'm sort of of the Griel Marcus school. It's always, what does it, what, what do I hear? What, do I, what am I experiencing as a listener? I'm not trying to guess what Bob Dylan, what's going on in Bob Dylan's life. Um, I'm, I'm really not that interested. I know that sounds kind of arrogant, but it's much more how it, how it affects me. And I write about my own life. And I often go back and tell little stories. Um, a song will remind me of something that happened. Or I, I'm constantly talking about when I first heard something or saw something. This book is also partly about... Uh, I moved out of Toronto and it's sort of my life as a Toronto moviegoer and leaving behind all those amazing movie theaters and remembering the time I saw Apocalypse Now at the university. Um, so I like to talk about stuff like that. Uh, I'm, I'm not, you know, the analytical side, the whole Susan Sontag against interpretation. I think I'm probably close to that. I'm not often trying to analyze something. It's much more sort of visceral and, and the uh, experience of it. 
That was Phil Dilio talking about his book, You Should Have Heard Just What I Seen, Pop Music at the Movies and on TV. You can find these books wherever you buy fine books, including Amazon.ca. My thanks to everyone who joined me today, James Purefoy, Rod Lurie, Phil Dilio. Most of all, though, my thanks goes to you. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Richard Krauss. I hope you're staying safe. I hope you're staying happy. And I hope you're staying healthy. We'll talk again soon.